We are seeking to approach difficult topics, speaking the truth in love, which is a mark of maturing or growing up into him who is the head, into Christ. And and we discussed last week this idea that because we're secure in who we are in Christ, then it's not about our culture endorsing our views. We don't need them to agree with us. We have enough uh, confidence in who we are in Jesus that even if they mock us, that, that we can still be the people of truth and the people of love who advocate for people who have different opinions than us. This morning we're going to deal with the topic of life. And I want to talk about when my life began. And I even brought you a baby picture this morning because I want you to see that I've always had a giant forehead. Some of this story I've shared before, but on June 13th, 1977, uh, just entering into her third trimester, (laughs) can we edit out that whistle when we, thank you for that, June 13th, 1977, uh, my mom just into her third trimester, went into early labor. She was rushed to the hospital, and yes, as the whistle indicated, that was a long time ago. And care for preemies and for uh, ladies late in pregnancy has changed a lot in the last 40 years. At that time, they told my mom there's zero chance this baby will live if he is born today. And so they did some uh, medical attempts to help my lungs develop. They attempted to stop her labor. They sent her back home. And the next day, June 14, 1977, uh, her, label, her labor uh, returned and was unstoppable this time. They rushed her back to the hospital, and uh, they said, we don't think this baby's going to live, but we think you're in distress. And so regardless, we've got to do an emergency cesarean section. And not only has, have the medical advancements changed, but I think um, bedside care has changed <laughs> And, and really the mentality of that day was, was tough love. And so every nurse that my parents encountered and every doctor that my parents encountered were very candid and blunt. This baby is not going to live. Um, I was born and put immediately into an incubator in uh, the NICU. And they continued to tell my mom, I know he's still alive now, but we don't think he's going to live much longer. They told her the same thing the next day. And the day after that, and the day after that, for about the first month of my life, I was in an incubator. What's interesting is my mom was a relatively young believer. She was a new Christian. She'd been born again for just a few years and was on fire for God. And and one of the times that she was able to hold me when they had taken me out of the incubator, she prayed over me and said, God, if you'll just let my baby boy live, I promise to raise him to know you and to serve you, and to love you. And every time I did anything wrong as a child, she told me that story. (laughs) Don't you know I didn't just labor you into existence? I labored before the throne, and you didn't clean your room. But what's interesting is I was preparing for this morning's conversation in truth and in love. I realized that the extraordinary care of the physicians and nurses, the unimaginable amount of money that was spent to save my life. I was sent home 38 weeks 
after my mom became pregnant. And the reason that's significant to me is because had I still been in the womb and not in an incubator, in eight states in the U.S., I still could have been aborted at that time. I had been fighting for my life for a month, and I was still subject to abortive resources in eight states and in the District of Columbia. There was quite an uproar January 22nd of this year when the governor of New York signed a bill into law that, that removed gestational limitations on abortion. But the amount of uproar to me seemed pretty uninformed that there were already seven states and in Washington, D.C. that had removed limitations, gestational limitations on abortion. More than 42 million abortions are performed every year globally which averages 115,000 abortions every day. And what's significant about that number is that I don't hear the people of God talking about this topic much anymore. I don't know if we just think we've been defeated and so we've given up, or perhaps we're just lulled into apathy about this which seems to be more the case because a headline news from the Associated Press this week was about vice presidential um, and presidential hopeful nominee for the Democratic Party, Joe Biden. Joe Biden is a lifelong Catholic, has been open about his Catholic faith, and whether you agree with Catholicism or not in this room, obviously we have major theological differences, but the fact is this is one of the topics where we do link arms together. And throughout his entire career, and Joe Biden has had a lengthy political career, throughout his entire career, Joe Biden has, even against his own party, uh, been against governmental funding for abortions until last week. Last week, he flip-flopped on a position that he has been rock solid on his entire political career and said he's now in favor of the discussion regarding government-funded abortions. And what's interesting about this Associated Press article is they're saying, oh, we think this is really going to hurt him with his Catholic base, with his Catholic friends and family. But this is the quote in the article that stood out to me. He said, the, the, uh, the author of the article, she said, the move seemed sure to hurt the, vice, the former vice, vice president with Catholics. But so far... Biden has faced little criticism over his shift on abortion funding. And what that reveals to me is even the people who care seem to not care very much anymore. And what we seek to do this morning is walk into a difficult and delicate topic with truth and with love. So please grab your Bible. If you don't have one, there's one underneath the seat in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for that to be your gift today uh, because we really think this is a special book. As a matter of fact, it's what's guiding our whole conversation uh, with these difficult topics. And so we have a tradition here. We hold this book up and say a creed together before we jump in. And so I invite you to join with me in that tradition this morning. Here we go. The Bible is the Word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart. And awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Thank you so much. We're going to look at two passages this morning. We're going to start in Genesis 1 and then we're going to go to Psalm 139. So if you want to turn first to Psalm 139 and put a finger there, 
and then turn over to Genesis chapter 1. That's where we'll start. We'll be in Genesis chapter 1 and in Psalm 139, starting in Genesis chapter 1. Have you ever been channel surfing and you see a show that's one of your favorite shows and so you stop surfing and you start watching the show but you miss the beginning of the show and you realize it's an episode you've never seen before and you're watching the show and you realize you have no clue what's going on because you picked it up in the middle of the story and in the middle of the drama and in the same way I don't think it's healthy for people living in 2019 to begin to discuss a topic of life without going back to the beginning of the episode. Because nothing will make sense today in the narrative if we don't get the beginning of the story right, which is why we go to Genesis chapter 1. We'll spend a good bit of time here in the coming weeks, but this morning we're only going to look at two verses, and then we're going to look at one verse in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Then God said... That phrase exists again and again and again in the Genesis narrative. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And we see that God continues to say, God said, let there be light. God continues to speak, and then into existence comes what he has spoken. This one's a little different. God said, let us make man. And here's a crucial language that we won't deal with a ton this morning, a little more next week, but... Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, because we reflect the image of God. It makes sense then that he would say, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In case you didn't understand that, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The redundance of that verse is intentional. Reveals that he is the creator and his image was the point of it all. That we would become his image bearers. The question is, this is what God did and this is why God did it. God created so that we would be his image bearers. The question is how? Because everything else in all of creation up to this moment, God said, and then it was. But our story is different. Turn one page to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 tells us the how of this crucial moment. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground. This time he speaks his plan But it doesn't come into existence until it becomes the work of his hands. So his image wasn't something he spoke over us. His image is something he placed on us. What an incredible thing. And often I ask people, so how were we created and how are we different than the rest of creation? And people will say, because God formed us, but we still weren't alive yet. And then the Lord God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul or being or creature. By the way, the reason I think that breathing techniques work for those who are dealing with depression and anxiety is because it takes us back to our genesis. We need something outside of us to save us from us. We've always needed his breath. This is how we came into existence. By the way, and when the woman was formed, God got his hands involved again. Took a rib from Adam. 
I've heard preachers say he didn't take a foot bone so that Adam would rule over her or a piece of his skull so that she would lord over him. He took a bone close to her heart. And I don't think that's theologically accurate at all, but it sure is warm and fuzzy. And then God forms the woman. That's how God created us. But that's not how he continued to create. When Cain and Abel were born, God did not form them from dust of the ground. God created a new process. The age-old question that is so theologically relevant, did Adam and Eve have a belly button? There was no umbilical cord, so did they? Or did God put one there just so that they would look like their kids? We don't know. Nor does it really matter. But the point is, the story totally changed after that. But it didn't change in such a way as though God removed himself from creation. And that's what's significant. Turn over to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Beginning in verse 13, David is writing the psalm, You formed my inward parts. Same word. Same Hebrew word and same idea. So the way that God continues to create is a different method, but it's no less his authority. We see that? God's no less involved in life in the womb than he was life in the garden. You formed me in my inward parts. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. We'll circle back to that verse in just a second. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed, there's that word for me, when there was yet none of them. How precious are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they're more than the sand I awake and I am still with you. That's the heart of this whole psalm is the presence of God. Even if I make my bed in hell, you are there. That God is with us. God's with us because he formed us. I do want us um, to look back again at verse 15. I'm sorry, verse 14 rather. Verse 14, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Can we just think about this verse for just a second? Essentially, David is going... Good job, God. I mean, you done good. Let's be honest. Well done. I praise you because, right? And I love, there's an idea that, that I read in David Platt's extraordinary book, Counterculture, which is for sale in uh, the cafe. And most of what I say that I will probably be most helpful this morning came from uh, David Platt's writing there, incredibly helpful this morning. But he pointed out how stunning these verses are because this is before we understood how life began. He wrote all this before there ever was a sonogram. He said, I was formed in secret back when it was very secret. <laughs> they had no understanding of it. At this time in history, there was an understanding of how a sperm fertilizes an egg. You understand that? 
didn't understand how in just a few weeks that a heart had been formed that was circulating blood to the rest of this little life. No understanding that within just a few weeks, hands had begun to form and move. No understanding that just in a few weeks that kidneys were being formed and then a, a gallbladder was being formed. No understanding that, that all of the, the organs, that all of the gender had been developed. That within just a few weeks that baby could cry within the womb. That's wonderful. The psalmist is praising God for something that we understand now better than any generation in the history of civilization. And our response has to be, praise you, God, that's glorious. This thing called human life is miraculous every single time. Praise you, God. A heart A brain, organs, sexuality, movement, reaction, all in the first trimester. The majority, the major majority of abortions occur within 10 to 4 weeks, 10 to 14 weeks. When most everything we just discussed has formed. The glory of God revealed in his creation. We say things, my wife and I have said this, we've, we've had moments where we have stood back and looked at our kids and said, hey, look what we did, right? Can you believe we made that? But theologically, no, that's the handiwork of God. Praise him. We are wonderfully Made. So, a couple observations from these two texts that, that will help form a framework for a biblical worldview in truth and love here. Number one, all life comes from God. We believe that God is not just the creator in the past, He's the creator in the present. And He's the creator in the future. Creation is not just something God did, it's something God does. Because it's who he is. He is the creator God. And all life comes from him. Job said in Job 33 verse 4. The spirit of God has made me. And the breath of the almighty gives me life. I agree Job. (laughs) All life comes from God. All life everywhere. The, the idea of atoms and molecules only can, can be a reality because he upholds the universe by the word of his power. All life comes from him. The reason that leaves will soon fall, I think, it supposedly is fall, even though it's 93 degrees today. At some point in time, leaves will fall and trees will look like they are dead only to be resurrected in a few months because God. He is the giver of all life. But there's certain life, namely human life, that bears his image. And we want to talk about how that life comes from God by saying this. We believe human life begins in the womb. Human life begins in the womb. That he formed us. I love that, that he knitted us together. 
I don't know how to knit. It looks really intricate, detail-oriented, and involves patience. So I'm out. But that that's what God is doing with human life, knitting us together. What a beautiful picture. And he's doing that not after 30 weeks, not after 40 weeks, not whenever we're actually born. He's doing that in the womb. So one of the the major arguments um, about this idea of of life is when does life begin? When does life begin? Is, Is life, the beginning of life, when we understand it? When we can see it, when we perceive it, when we know that we're pregnant. and I love what David Platt here said. He said, God reminds us in his word that though an unborn baby is visibly hidden from us, he or she is not hidden from him. Because he's the one who's building that life and forming that life. God told Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 1 verse 5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. In the beginning of the great Christmas story, John the Baptist, while in his mother's womb, leaps with joy when Mary walks in the room carrying the Messiah, the pronouncement of the Messiah. And I believe right now, all across the world, in this very moment, there is a holy global sonogram taking place in the mind and heart of God. He sees every life in the womb. And one of the things that what we call the pro-life movement or the pro-choice movement, one of the things we argue about a lot is when is it actually a life? As a matter of fact, sometimes the argument gets lost in when does life begin? Most pro-lifers are going to dig their heels in and say we contend for a a, a position that life begins at conception. Then we have to get into medical conversations about what defines conception. Is every fertilized egg a conception? At what point in time is the development it considered a baby? And then we're having medical debates. And this is glorious, and I didn't write down who I got this from, so I can't give credit to the author that I stole this from. But somebody that I was reading and preparing this topic said this, We don't primarily contend for a when position. We contend for a where position in the womb. From the moment that we know it's a life in the womb, it's been life. It was a life before we knew it was there. So whenever the conversation is beginning, life in the womb is protected in the heart and mind of God. We primarily argue for a where and not a when. And by the way, because that's the way we talk. When Maurice and I got pregnant with our first child, we didn't say, hey, guess what? We're having a blob of cells. We're going to have some tissue. We didn't sit our parents down and go, we might have a potential human life. We said, guess what? We're having a baby. And after he was born... And after we lost the next pregnancy and had a miscarriage, we didn't grieve the loss of tissue. We grieved the loss of life. And by the way, people who contend against the pro-choice position, 
will walk up to someone suffering through miscarriage and say, I'm so sorry for your loss. The language of our culture reveals that we believe life in the womb is life. This was also revealed a few years ago. Maybe some of you remember this, when Princess Kate got pregnant with their first child, right? It was this huge announcement, the royal baby is coming, right? And this was several years ago. Prince George just turned six years old. So around seven years ago, this was was big news. But around this time, a, a theologian named Denny Burke wrote an awesome article that I remember reading where he questioned why we're not calling it the royal fetus. If we're going to be consistent... And what he said is this. He said, listen, these secular reporters are talking about the royal baby. They're calling this baby in the womb an heir to the throne. The same ones who believe that life in the womb is just tissue. If we're going to be consistent, we should call it the royal blob. I'm not trying to be disrespectful. The fact is, a reporter who would have ever dared to speak that way would have been blasted. What I tend to believe, and what I believe the heart of God reflects, every baby in the womb is a royal baby. And is an heir to the promises of a faithful God. And what's awaiting for them is is the heir of inheritance as adoption as sons and daughters. That's royalty. We believe life comes from God in the womb. And really the whole question of what we're talking about, what is in the womb? If that question is answered, all other questions around this topic find resolution. What is in the womb? I love what Gregory Kokel says. He says, if the unborn is not a human person... No justification for abortion is necessary. But if the unborn is a human person, then no justification for abortion is adequate. If this isn't a baby, then we don't need to argue about it. You don't need to defend it or justify it. But if it is human life, then it's indefensible. The question of what is in the womb is the question that defines the whole argument. And what we believe is in the human womb is life. Human life created by God in the image of God. Which means no justification is adequate. Because we believe that that life bears the image of God, it reveals another core principle of our worldview, and that is all life has value. All life has value, not, indis- not discriminate value, indiscriminate value. We do not discriminate against human life. All life has value, whether that life is difficult or not. I, I wish I could go in a time machine. And go back to the beginnings of this great nation with the worldview that I have today. Because I'd like to think that my current worldview, I'd have been the loudest preacher advocating against human slavery. The stain that it was on our nation. Because all life has value. 
By the way, it's the same reason that we advocate against human slavery today and human trafficking today and sex slavery today. Why does that not exist for human life in the womb? All life has value. I want to introduce you to a young lady at Temple Christian School named Brianna. Brianna is one of the happiest, most joyful little girls you could ever meet. Brianna has been a student here for the last couple of years. Praise God. And this is not a commercial for TCS, but I just got to tell you, I'm, I'm really proud of the fact that two of the leading organizations in Fort Worth that offer shadows, people who their full-time job is to shadow special needs children, when a family comes to them and says, hey, we want to be in a faith-based school, they recommend Temple Christian School. We're one of the only Christian schools in the Metroplex that will allow a shadowing opportunity for a special needs student. And Brianna's parents, um, I wish I could read you some of their emails of how grateful they are that we allow Brianna to be in a classroom with children her own age and the dignity that they've seen develop in her because of that. But I don't think Temple Christian School has just been good for Brianna. I believe she's been good for Temple Christian School. She's been good for me. This past December, I had a rough day. Yes, even spiritual preachers have bad days. Sorry, newsflash. I had a bad day. And I'll be honest with you. The last thing I wanted to do was come to the Christmas choir concert because I was not feeling very jolly. Seriously. But that's the job. Merry Christmas. So I put on the fake smile and I drove up to campus and I stood in the back and complained to Blake about my bad day. (laughs) And then... And then the third and fourth grade choirs got up to sing. And I watched our students help Brianna up on the stage with her little walker. And I watched them hold her hand and keep her steady on the little riser. And I watched her sing. Oh, from the bottom of her heart with so much joy. I saw how our kids were cheering her on and loving her and supporting her. And in that moment, I was ministered to. By Brianna. But here's the heartbreaking thing. 92% of the Briannas in our culture are being executed before they ever have a chance to change the world. Ninety-two percent of Down syndrome diagnoses in pregnancy are being terminated. And I don't pretend to say that that being Brianna's mom or dad is easy. And I'm not saying it's fair. And, and I understand that neither of my three sons have Down syndrome, and so maybe it's easy for me to say this. But one of the brightest spots I see on our campus every day only had an 8% chance of shining as the light that she is in our culture. God forgive us. Finland is actually boasting over the fact that they have eradicated Down syndrome from their culture. Through diagnoses in pregnancy and then abortive care, 
they proudly proclaim that they have eradicated Down syndrome. And what I would submit is because all life has value, they've eradicated Brianna. All life has value. Even Down syndrome children. Let's talk about this, this idea of a woman's right to choose. The fact that I'm speaking on this today and I'm not female in a big part of our culture means I don't have a right to say anything. And what I would say is I believe that we are free, but we are accountable. Being created in the image of God means we do have the right to choose. But we don't have the right to choose the consequences of our choosing. We're accountable for our actions. The fact is, God gives us tremendous freedom. Freedom to do all kinds of things that he says are morally wrong. But we're accountable for those actions. We have rights, but we do not have autonomy. We aren't God. We're created under his authority. So let me say two things about gender specifically. The first thing I would say is, Gender reveals have gotten out of hand. It's nuts. The second thing I would say is people who don't find out the gender freak me out. Like, you can have a plan and like have the room painted and be ready and you choose not to. You're what's wrong with the world. You don't know where your car keys are, do you? How can you not find out? This isn't the dark ages. It freaks me out. But when it comes to this topic of a woman's right to choose, the fact is in many places in the world, if in the womb you're revealed to be a woman, you're exponentially more likely to be aborted. Especially in... Countries like China with a limit on the number of children that you can have. Or in India where the price of a dowry is, is so extraordinary that most families feel like it's, if it's a girl, it's not worth it. And so while our culture is screaming for a woman's right to choose, I'm just advocating for a woman's right to live. The, the, the Exponentially, the, the number of babies being aborted are overwhelmingly female. And in the U.S. are overwhelmingly African American. And so if we believe that all life has value, then we should all speak into the accountability that we have to care for life, to protect life, and to advocate for life. We believe that all children, regardless of gender, are wonderfully made in God's image and have the right to live. And I believe it's the government's job to help advocate for life. That is the role of the government. According to Romans chapter 13 and elsewhere in Scripture, it's the role of the government to protect life. Now, I believe in limited government. I'll be honest with you. I think our government is far too large and far too powerful. That might be too political to say this morning, but you'll get over it. Um, I believe we should have more freedom and not less freedom. However, when it comes to issues of life and death, that is the role of the government. 
If what is in the womb is human life, then it is the role of the government to protect that life. Now, one of the things that we often hear the culture say is that the government can't legislate morality. I've actually used that phrase at times, but I think it's awfully misunderstood. The fact is the government only legislates morality. All laws are moral. The reason you can't come into my house and take my stuff is because it's wrong. The reason you can't go kill somebody is because it's wrong. The reason you can't drive in such a way on the roads that it puts my kid's life at danger is because it's morally wrong. We've decided that as a culture. It's wrong. The reason you can't abuse an innocent victim, steal a child's innocence, because it's wrong. And by the way, I would say this. The reason you cannot kidnap my children is because it's wrong. You'd probably bring them back when you try to feed them. It's wrong. You can't kidnap my children. And in the same way, I would say it's morally wrong to kill children before they have a chance to live. We believe life in the womb is given by God and protected by God. And it is the government's role to protect that life. Now, we are pro-choice about a million other things. We believe in the right to choose a million other things. You can choose today whether you're going to go eat Mexican food after church or Chinese food or go get a burger or go get fried chicken. You, you can choose whatever you want to do today. You can choose that. You can choose what kind of car you drive. You're accountable for that. If you go get a bank loan for a car that you can't afford to drive and then they have to repossess it, you're accountable for that. Did you have the right to choose that? It's the government's right to advocate for life when our choices aren't in best interest for life. Now let me say this. And I want you to hear me. I'm, I'm getting close to done, but please don't, don't be done with me now because this is the most important thing I'm going to say. There is grace and hope and life in Jesus Christ for you. Let's, let's speak some love over this topic because I believe, listen, I want to say this, oh, I want to say this kindly. I believe a lot of people who are advocating against abortion are doing so in a tone that does not reflect the heart of God. I believe there's an assumption in some of the conservative body of Christ that anyone who would ever have an abortion is just an evil, vindictive, heartless person, and that is a lie. And we do see some celebrities who are parading their abortion in, in a heartless and in a calloused way. But I believe most abortions happening in our culture are happening from people who literally don't know there's another option. They've not been told that there's another way. That's why we support organizations like Mid-Cities Pregnancy Centers. Man, for much of our culture, they've never heard that they're valued. They've never heard that every life matters to God. And so before we throw stones without hearing their story and loving them and coming alongside, let's remember Jesus isn't the stone thrower. I also think it's important for us to understand that conservative, conservative estimates are that one third of women in America have had an abortion or will have an abortion in their lifetime. One in three. 
And so if we're talking about this in a rude and callous and arrogant manner, we are sinning against women for the sake of protecting children. Does that sound logical? God loves all people, including all of us who have regrets. That beautiful verse that says he saw us when we were unseen. I want to say over you this morning, God sees you and he loves you both in the womb and in your regrets. He sees you and he loves you before you're born and he sees you and loves you a long time after your birth when you've got a list of things you wish you could do over. God loves you. His mercy is available. His grace is available for you. And I want to be honest about what I believe God's view is on abortion. I just want to do so with a tone that is loving and reflects the heart of God. And I'm pretty much out of time, but I feel like I need to say one more thing to the people of God today. If we advocate against abortion but do not advocate for adoption and foster care and orphan care, then we're not actually pro-life. We're just anti-abortion. And I think it's good to be anti-abortion. I just think it's better to be pro-life. And that means we as the people of God have to care for life everywhere it exists and is vulnerable. That means that the the most pro-life thing you can do is love on a foster parent. The most pro-life thing you can do is get on your knees before God and say, would you have us adopt in our household? Loving and living in both truth and love is more than just words. It's, It's sacrificially coming alongside those who need to know that The loving body of Christ cares. The fact is, for the hopeless little girl who is alone and doesn't know how she could ever raise a baby, she looks at the fact that if the churches would just step up in Tarrant County, there would be no foster problem here. And she thinks, well, if they don't care, then maybe nobody cares. We serve a pro-life God. Matter of fact, When his son died, the first thing he did was bring him back to life. Same thing he wants to do in our life. He wants life for you today. And today the the position and the politics of this issue are so much less important than your heart before God. He's concerned to know that you've experienced adoption as his sons and his daughters. And if you don't know for sure that you have a personal relationship with God, there's nothing more important today than that. So in just a moment, I'm going to pray a prayer. As I pray, there's going to be some men and women in the prayer room in the back, and we would love to have a conversation with you about how you can know for sure that you're a child of God.